Welcome, everybody, to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students at RTS. Hi, Peter. Hi, Scott. It's good to be with you again. I'm also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at RTS. Hi, Tommy. Good morning, Scott. And I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, Lecturer in New Testament at RTS and Senior Pastor of New City Presbyterian Church here in the Tysons area. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Scott. Um, it is a joy to be with you all here for our fourth episode, and what we're going to start off with is actually talking about liturgical calendars. This is now, as of the time of recording, this is uh, the day after Easter Sunday. We've just had a weekend here of uh, Easter greetings and Good Friday laments and Holy Saturday remembrances, though I suspect even many people doing liturgical calendars aren't sure what to do on Holy Saturday. But it does raise the question of what are we to think about the liturgical calendar? This is not a small issue in Reformed history. Um, Someone who was raised in Episcopalian church, we, uh, our family observed uh, the liturgical calendar, sometimes uh, more rigorously, sometimes more casually, depending on sort of the spiritual season that the family was in, I suppose. So I was raised in a family that thought about the, retur- the liturgical calendar a decent amount. And yet now being a Reformed Presbyterian, um, as a matter of fact, as I came into the Reformed Presbyterian circles, you know, I was struck by the fact that there are large groups of people who not only don't observe the liturgical calendar, um, they actually oppose the observance of the liturgical calendar. So I want to open that up. Dr. Tommy Keene, what are we supposed to think about the liturgical calendar? It's a fascinating question. It's one that you know, touches not only our theology, but also our interpretation of uh, the Bible. You know, there's exegetical issues there. There's theological ones there. There's ecclesiological issues, uh, historical ones. I mean, it's one of those those points where a lot of different questions kind of collide. As a New Testament um, exegete, I I was, I remember um, thinking about these issues a couple years ago and coming across that passage and pause, just trying to look it up, and I didn't come across the exact reference, but uh, we can, we can throw it in the, the, um, the show notes, if we'd like, uh, where Paul uh, is in a hurry. He's in a hurry to get out of Ephesus, and he wants to go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate Pentecost. And I remember being struck by that, one, because uh, particularly as a Protestant, Pentecost is not something that ever gets kind of celebrated in the, the church calendar. Uh, Christmas, yes. Easter, yes. Good Friday, yes. But Pentecost is not something that, you know, you have a Pentecost Sunday. Um, so, so I was struck by that from a kind of thinking through Paul's eyes, uh, Paul's brain kind of standpoint, Pentecost being a, a particularly important event for him. Um, but then also mapping that onto 
the remembering of important days and the, the keeping of, you know, a regular rhythm and, and thinking about, you know, to touch on something we said last week, those unrepeatable events, uh, the, uh, the unprecedented things and Pentecost being one of those. So that, that I mean, that's a fr my first thought just from an exegetical standpoint is what is going on kind of in Paul's mind as he is remembering certain days? Yeah, I think that's a great point. When you think about the practical aspects of the liturgical calendar, I'm reminded of a time when I you know, was pastoring at a church and we initiated a, a community Bible reading plan. And we really spent a lot of time. We decided we wanted to do this on our own and not use the other reading plans out there. I'm not sure of the wisdom of that, but we put together this community reading program so everybody would be reading the Bible uh, and reading the same passages of the Bible at the same time. Mm -hmm. And as we were doing it, I was reflecting on what we were fundamentally doing because this was a function. It was a ministry of our church. And we were very deliberate about wanting it to augment the preached word on Sunday morning. And yet what we were really doing was creating a kind of liturgical calendar, right? On Monday of this day, you were supposed to read X and it was prescribed mm. by the church. None of us thought that it was actually a means of grace, I should say, in this, in sort of the formal sense. And yet it was augmenting the means of grace, the, the, the preached word on Sunday morning. You know, I thought there's a practical use to this. This is in many ways a spiritual discipline and there's a value to having a schedule or a calendar that reminds us to go through the, the I don't want to say the, the motions, but to go through the seasons of redemptive history. So I can see a practical use to it. And what, what else is good about the liturgical calendar? Paul, what do you think? Well, I'm a bit quiet about the subject because I confess that from the perspective of a church planter, I probably have a more utilitarian approach. And so when New City began, we didn't observe anything, including Christmas. I know it's terrible. Um, and I think we were preaching through judges one Christmas and it didn't go over well because uh, family members brought their unbelieving um, family members just on Christmas. And we went through one of the more bloody passages in uh, Judges. And I think it was during that time we realized that there would just be wisdom to observing these uh, particular dates. And I think we were almost responding to um, an overemphasis on them, but we probably erred on the other extreme. I think that both of you have already alluded to this, that observance of a liturgical calendar, I think can be a very good thing, so long as we don't make it the thing. Does that make sense? Um, I think that's how we've been approaching it. And so we have noticed that because it not only helps our current members, but also visitors, we try to err on observing the calendar now. We had a similar situation and when I was a real pastor at our church where the there, there were a number of people that didn't appreciate uh, or, or whose consciences were frankly burdened by the, the keeping of a calendar, even, even something that's kind of uh, ordinary in one sense, like Christmas or Easter 
or depending on your background, uh, Palm Sunday or something like that. And one of the challenges was to you know be concerned to protect the consciences of those those who were burdened by it. And we we thought of a number of different ways I think to do that. But particularly given your context, that might be something that you need to think about. Is this going to be a stumbling block for a, a portion of your congregation or, or, or community? Right. I mean, this was, you know, historically, this was one of the main tenets in the Reformation. And many of the churches were putting off the liturgical calendar of the Roman Catholic Church that, that had really developed and been put in place um, you know, during the medieval period. And so there's this interesting, you know, d- deeply felt conviction in the Reformation that we have to put this away and observe Sunday worship. And you find that a pretty much across the board in a lot of the, re- in most of the reform movements of that period. You know, so it raises the question, what is the danger of the liturgical calendar? What do we have to be careful of when we're talking about that, particularly in light of you know, really over the last few years, I've seen more and more PCA pastors and you know, I'm not so, maybe not so much in the OPC, but I've seen it somewhat, you know, but PCA pastors and EPC pastors who are really observing even the minor seasons of the liturgical calendar. What, what are some of the dangers we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about it? There is a sense in which I think the, uh, you know, these liturgical calendars are so consistent all year round. You kind of wonder if it's just really going to be adequately Christocentric. You know, there's a reason why it seemed the reformers rejected the liturgical calendar. You know, it, it just sort of undermined the whole sabbatical nature of, of and the centrality of Sabbath. Um, you know, I, I just did some thoughts on, on, on the Old Testament festivals. And how, uh, you know, Colossians 2 talked about the, these festivals of the Old Testament as being now shadows and copies fulfilled in Christ. Thus, they don't continue. But you can't wonder, I can't help but wonder if the artifacts of the calendars can be in a way sort of a continuance of that, at least at a broad level. I mean, there is a certain beauty, I think, to celebrating sort of the history of salvation, the, the life of Christ throughout the year. That is that that truly is fantastic and truly, um, you know, something for us to be uh, sensitive to. While at the same time, uh, there there is a reason why we emphasize the centrality of, of the Sabbath in in our in our pattern of life and in, in worship. Um, um, you know, that's the only real special day that we need is the Sabbath. That's the why we have it the way that we do. Uh, you know, even something like like Easter or, or Resurrection Sunday, if we want to use a more politically correct term within the context of evangelicalism, um, you kind of wonder if if perhaps um, you know we we make a big deal about Resurrection Sunday and properly so. But the thing is, is that isn't that the way every Sunday should be? Is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Um, we kind of reduced the, the doctrine of the resurrection and preaching the resurrection to just one Sunday a year. That that doesn't seem to me a healthy form of, of preaching. Um, I guess that's sort of the danger that, that we could see is that we isolate uh, certain high points in the ministry of Jesus only to select times of the year and only then and not see a holistic preaching of Christ as a regular ministry of the word from week to week on a regular basis. I used to 
have conversations about the difference between the Protestant and the, the Catholic world with a lot of my friends when I was doing my PhD at Catholic University. I remember one of my friends was, was a Maronite priest, um, which itself is an interesting religious rite. They're in communion with Rome, and yet they use an Aramaic rite instead of a um, Latin rite. They also are able to marry the priests are, which is interesting, but he was actually a convert from sort of, I think I could probably say generally reformed evangelicalism. And I remember him one time saying, you know, the problem with you Protestants and the problem with you reformed folks is that you don't read the old Testament anymore to which of course, you know, I wanted to say, well, you know, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off of me, right? Because that would have been my, my criticism. I thought that was our strong suit, that we were still reading the Old Testament uh, and, uh, you know, being aware of the grand movements of redemptive history and covenantal history. And yet I think he was trying to get at this point too a little bit. I think he was saying, well, they had this institutionalized festal calendar in the Old Testament. Shouldn't we have that in the new? But I think by making that, a, a theological normative, Peter, you're exactly right. You're missing what Paul says has been fulfilled in Christ, you know? And I, and I think that that's, that's an important point as we're talking about this. I think each one of us, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, probably observes Easter or um, you know, Christmas in some kind of casual way. Um, you know, you probably do it in a variety of different ways. Um, but you probably acknowledge it and, you know, we've all been pastors, you know, and have done something like what, you know, Tommy and Paul were talking about, either totally ignoring or um, observing in some casual way the liturgical calendar. So how ought we think about that as, as reformed believers and pastors? How do we think about the liturgical calendar in terms of leading in worship? Um, is there a casual use of the liturgical calendar? I wonder if there's an, an analogy here, if we make the analogy or the analog in the Old Testament, the Sabbath days and feasts and things like that, I wonder if, if we run up into problems. But if we make it just the keeping of uh, certain traditions and the re remembrance of certain critical events, if it's a little bit easier to, to maintain a kind of casual importance. You know, I'm thinking about when uh, you know, Israel will set up a cairn as they cross over the Jordan. Um, as a kind of remembrance of what has transpired and the, the, the magnitude of that without it being integrated into, into the sacrificial system and the, the rights of, of Israel, et cetera. Um, the Bible does kind of encourage us to remember significant days. And our, our church, no one had a problem celebrating, for example, the foundation day of our particular local congregation. That was something that we did. Um, and with joy as remembering of God's faithfulness without burdening the conscience and saying, this is for the, ch for the church in all ages, and this is a, a, a right that will make us clean before the Lord or something like that. That does seem to be a, a nice expression of, of um, our remembering of Christ, his great redemptive events. Um, and as I think both Paul and Tommy alluded to, you know, our members seem to be kind of raised with this idea that uh, we celebrate the birth of Christ in a way that is uh, really highlighted or the death and resurrection of Christ that really makes it outstanding. Uh, yeah, these things to a certain degree are, are central to everything that we do from day to day, from week to week. 
um, but to really highlight it and to take advantage of the fact that, you know, here's an opportunity that we have as a church. The entire known world is focusing now on the birth of Christ or the death of Christ. And for us to uh, not take advantage of that um, and to really highlight it, I mean, there's some wisdom uh, to that. That does seem to be, yes, very casual. We're not making a theological statement on worship necessarily, but just an opportunity that we use to, to really glorify our Savior. And I can see how, just to wrap it up, I, mean, I can see how in the Reformation, you know, we're talking about a time right now where, you know, I see people casually observing and, and, and you know, generally uh, applying the liturgical calendar, maybe during Lent, they're meditating on the notion of repentance, you know, uh, but, but it's not anything like what we saw during the Reformation period. And you can imagine how in the Reformation period, they really are taking a somewhat radical stand against um, an institutionalized work, as it were, that is adding to what the Bible requires of us in terms of worship. And so you can see how historically there's a very strong view, and, and still I can imagine some context in today's day and age, some context where that also, that, that might be another similarly radical position to take. And yet, thank God, um, we don't find ourselves in that situation uh, at least here in the Western Church. Tell you what, let's let's wrap up and um, on that topic, and I want to switch over to something else. Um, almost in celebration of Easter weekend, Reformed Theological Seminary announced its summer classes uh, that were coming out. This came out, I think, some I think right around Thursday last week, um, because of the the realities surrounding the COVID nineteen. Um, crisis and needing to social distance and quarantine, we've decided to totally redo our summer semester, as it were, so that we are truly going to be offering classes across the board. No matter what campus you're in, you'll have the same large offering of courses. And it really is kind of an exciting experiment in some ways. We've been given this pretty difficult situation with social distancing, and at the same time, we're trying to come up with some creative ways to not only offer theological education, but actually maybe even serve our student body a little bit better in this time when people are stuck at home, many of them are, and uh, have time to take more classes. So um, I'd like to take this opportunity for us to talk a little bit about why seminary education is important. This isn't a commercial for RTS. This is actually for people who have dedicated their lives to theological education talking about why that call was so compelling to them. Dr. Lee, I'd love to start with you because I've heard you talk about this. It's near and dear to your heart. Why, why theological education and why maybe even adding on to that? Is it particularly important now? Well, I, I, for me, uh, seminary and what, what seminary education has to offer is more than just uh, a solid uh, training in in theological thought. It's more than training in biblical studies, uh, exegesis, history of of the development of theology. It's more than all of that. It it all kind of combines for me to kind of give a nice, healthy uh, way of looking at life um, from very strong, God-centered, biblically-centered, even confessionally-centered way of understanding the life and and the world in, in which we live. Uh, I mean, I went to seminary with a lot of guys who ended up not going into pastoral ministry. 
uh, some became became um, artists, uh, some became uh, medical professionals. Uh, for them, seminary really provided sort of a, a good, uh, solid Calvinistic worldview for them to know how to engage and interact with the world in which, with, in which they live, to know how to uh, deal with uh, not just crises in life, but uh, unbelief that they're surrounded with, and to know how to defend what they believe, to know how to um, uh, articulate their thoughts on God, the hope that they have in Christ. Um, even if uh, if you were one that's definitely heading into the pastoral track and, and discerning the call to ministry, uh, I would definitely encourage seminary is, is something you really want to consider and definitely want to head towards. But even if you're not, uh, you know, to take off a, a year or so uh, to get grounded on matters of truth, on doctrine, on scripture, uh, to see the flow of salvation, to get a view of life, um, that it's going to be so beneficial and helpful in everything that you do in life. Paul, I have a lot of thoughts on this. <clears throat> I, um, I've been asked whether I want my sons to become pastors. And I'll say, uh, for the sake of the gospel, they probably should not become pastors. <laughs> but um, if they have opportunity, I would recommend seminary. Because, you see, the thing is, like, you know, a lot of us have had a lot of different forms of education. And I think it's all great, but at the end of the day, you want to be able to ask this question of whether this whole Jesus thing is true, right? And I'm not saying you can't get that from, like, um, from just good preaching at your church, but I think that, like Peter just mentioned, it's so worthwhile to just take a year or two off, whether you become a pastor, to have a concentrated time to ask the eternal questions that matter, you know, and, and whether you become a pastor, you at least now have this worldview, or maybe you walk away not believing, but you're going to be a much deeper person as a result. So I think that these, um, taking a year off or two, just to go to seminary, to really explore in depth, like what we believe and why and so forth, is such a worthwhile investment. And so my hope is that my, um, my children would do that, regardless of what their profession is. I remember Mark Putata, who taught, just looking here, Dr. Lee and myself, Hebrew. I don't think, did you guys ever have Mark Putato? Did you have the opportunity? Uh, Hebrew professor, um, taught at multiple institutions, now is, is at RTS in Orlando. He used to say that seminary is like, you know, watching a TV show that heretofore you've seen in black and white, and then someone suddenly turns on the color. Mm. You know, he says, you rarely get to seminary, you know, unless you have just really no biblical education beforehand. You rarely get to seminary and learn like something that's entirely new in the Bible that you'd never heard of before. But what you do learn is the kind of depth, you know, the ocean, the universe that stands behind these doctrines that we hold dear. You know, and I've, I've used this before when talking to new students, whether you're going into ministry or not, when you come to seminary, you're, you're, it's, it's, uh, you know, you can re even really go further. It's like in the first year it goes from black and white to color. And in the second year, it's like color to high definition. And then in the third year, it's from high definition, you know, to whatever third, you know, 3d, you know, curve screen or whatever. Like it's, 
you're just amplifying more and more of these ideas. You, you always knew Jesus was your savior, but did you know how he was your savior, right? Or you knew Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, but were you able to see how he fulfilled the Old Testament, all the richness that, that brings? And I've seen students come, and it's one of the greatest joys of, I think, our calling as professors is to watch those lights come on as people yeah. suddenly realize oh, I knew this was the case, but now it's like, I really know this is the case, right? I think also to that point, Scott, um, which I think you, I think we can boil that down to seminary is like the Wizard of Oz. Is that, that's basically what you're saying? Yeah, that's all I'm saying, really. Yeah. It's when Dorothy comes out and to Munchkin Land. Yep. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, the, there is this, there are two things I think of when I think of seminary that, that seminary gave me at least as a pastor. Um, and I, I remember this because, you know, th this might be a little dated now, but uh, a couple of years ago, there was a series of blog posts that, that somebody did on what I didn't learn from seminary. And I have actually appreciated a lot of those because there are things that you cannot emulate in the seminary classroom. You know, you just, Pre preaching to a group of seminarians is not like preaching to a congregation in which they're crying kids and middle schoolers rolling their eyes. And it's just, it, it's just a different feel. And so you can't learn those things, but through, you know, field experience. But on the other hand, there are things that the seminary can provide that, that are unique and appropriate and targeted that you actually don't have time to really develop in the church. And the two that came to mind for me in my ministry were uh, first depth. Seminary gave me deep roots, both theologically, historically, and uh, you know, exegetically. So I, I might've left seminary not knowing how to preach my first sermon, but what I left with was a, a depth of exegetical skill and ability to preach, uh, to, to learn those skills of, of how to preach but then I had the material and the groundwork, the, the substance to use for, for years and years and years uh, to come. So it gave me theological depth to think through those situations. And the other thing that it provided through, through professors and fellow student interactions was feedback. And as a, professor, as, a, as a pastor in 10 years of ministry, finding good, substantive, critical, but... Um, careful feedback from a group of peers is really hard to come by. And that's what seminary is dedicated for. You get, you get feedback to your material, to your papers that you're producing, practical questions, case studies that you're dealing with from people that have done it for, for years and have thought deeply about these things. Yeah, there's a dialogue that you can't find anywhere else. Peter, what, what were you going to add to that? I was just going to uh, echo a lot of what Tommy was just saying. The you know if 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 students come in to seminary thinking, uh, you know, I was thinking of uh, Tommy mentioned alluded to this book of what these ten things at seminary didn't teach me, and and I really thought and I don't know if someone has done this, but uh, there really should be a you know ten things that seminary did teach me type response, uh, because if you walk into seminary thinking that this is gonna make you a better small group leader or, um, or a better preacher even, or it's gonna equip you better to do uh, youth ministry. I, I don't know if that's gonna be uh, 
you may walk away from seminary a bit disappointing. What seminary is going to do is going to equip you to be to know how to manage and understand the Word of God, how to work through the Word, and the Word and the ministry of the Word is, of course, our most primary tool in ministry. And to, it seems that the better that we can equip people to be students of the Word, it really is the most practical thing that we can do to prepare young men and women to be leaders of the of the church uh, for the for you know both now as well as the um, uh, as the next generation. In, in that sense, for me, I'll tell you, brothers. I mean, this is the god honest truth. Seminary was one of the best times of my life. I loved it. I loved, uh, and some of the chatter. Um, and I don't want to be overly critical and harsh on this, but you know, we have students that have said that they uh, struggle a bit spiritually because of, uh, of the rigors of the academics. And, and I must confess that that just was not my experience at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the classes and the lectures were like the word that was feeding my soul. Uh, it nourished my heart, uh, maybe because so much of it was new, you know, and, and, you're, and even the things you didn't know uh, that, um, that you're just being refreshed on. Uh, there were times when you just wanted to kind of stop in class and just sing a hymn, you know, and, um, and, I felt like, uh, I felt like when I was Peter on that point, you know, when I was in seminary, I had a professor early on encourage me to make sure I was very deliberate in the way that I was studying God's word that I, I, I never treated it as a textbook. He said, if you ever find yourself just flipping through it really quickly, trying to find the answer for a test or a quiz, you know, be careful. I remember it is God's word. It's a living fire. Um, I've, I've often felt like that before, that the Bible is like a fire in that it's necessary for life. I need it. And yet you don't play with it. And I think, now this is just me, and I'm sure I know different people have had different seminary experiences, but I know at RTS, and in you know, particularly I'm you know, intimately familiar with RTS Washington. There's such an encouragement to have a high view of the word that I, I often want to go back to students who, who do the seminary cemetery trope. And I don't hear it that much from our students, but when I do, I want to say, have you thought about how you were receiving it? Like, what were you doing with this material that you were being taught? Were you treating it with reverence? Were you going to it as the words of the lover of your soul to your heart, you know? Um, so I think there's a, lot, there's a lot on the student there in terms of del- being deliberate and mindful about how they're approaching seminary study. Tommy, you wanted to add something to what Peter had said. Just one little footnote. I think there was a, a pushback series of articles. I, I, again, I can't remember w- exactly where it was published, but things I did learn from, from seminary. So I, I probably could Google, uh, Google that. And, and to be honest, both points are worth making. We need, as, pa- you know, as future pastors, you do need that practical training of like how to run a small group, how to, how to plant a church. You know, Paul is, uh, Dr. John is doing, um, uh, has has done some classes on on how on church planting and and what that what that looks like and so you, you need those kind of practical brass tacks. This is what you're going to do on the ground. But what seminary additionally will give you is that that theory and, and like as Peter said that biblical wisdom that is able to handle situations that you can't foresee. And I wonder if there's an analogy between 
you know, Old Testament case law and, and then biblical wisdom, that you have these, these series of laws that tells you what to do when your ox falls into a ditch on the Sabbath. Like, here's how you fix that. But then you also have wisdom literature, which gives you insight into life that is practical and applicable in a very different way a depth of insight that can be reapplied over and over and over again. And seminary is well equipped to, to give us that kind of biblical, theological, and pastoral wisdom, even, even as it seeks to put it into practice in the daily life of the church. Yeah, I, I agree, Tommy. I don't think that uh, we can leave the training of future ministers to just one uh, uh, aspect there, uh, you know, if if they are not adequately prepared theologically, that's on the burden of the seminary. If they don't know how to shepherd God's people, that might be on the burden of the church. It needs the two aspects there to prepare the uh, leaders of tomorrow and to prepare them both with the uh, theological rigor as well as the sensitive shepherding uh, aspects of ministry. And uh, you can learn those two aspects best one in the seminary, the other is in the context of the church. I totally agree. Yeah, as a personal anecdote in my own life, uh, like many people, I've rediscovered the art of making your own bread in, in quarantine. And uh, right now, you know, I've, I've got a book on bread making, and I can read the theory of how all this works and, and how this thing's puts together, and, and even instructions and in how to fold the bread and all this kind of stuff. But and that's, that's very helpful because it helps me iterate and think about what I'm going to do next and, and how I'm going to improve the process. But what really helps, too, is just the YouTube video of just watching somebody do it. And you, and you need both of those things. And I, I think the seminary alongside the church is, to your point, Peter, best equipped to provide both of those components to pastoral training. That article was, uh, it's been mentioned, was written by Greg Lanier, who teaches uh, New Testament down at RTS Orlando and is written for the Gospel Coalition, 15 Things Seminary Teaches, but the pastorate can't. And uh, so I draw your attention to that. Um, thanks, Timo Sazo, who is our silent partner here of this podcast, who's fact-checking us as we go, go along and feeding us citations and witticisms to pass on to you, our faithful listeners. Uh, Paul, any thoughts on seminary education before we close down? Yeah, I, I would echo everything um, everyone has said so far. I think maybe sometimes students, I mean, everyone's going to have a unique experience, but I think students can sometimes be disappointed because of the language that seminaries use when they talk about their purpose. Um, even though seminaries do try to hit several bases, I do think that seminaries excel more in the knowledge and the theory, which Tommy's right. Like everyone needs that. And I think that so long as you go to seminary with right expectations, it helps a lot. And even then there's so much variation. And I think one of the advantages, and this isn't a plug for RTSDC, but one of the advantages we do have as a seminary is that all of us have significant pastoral ministry. So even when we talk about the sovereignty of God or, you know, things like that, for us, we can talk about it in a very real context and even say things like, okay, this is how I've used it. This is how you might use it. Um, this is what is actually important. This is something that you just want to know what to reference. 
And so it's very hard to make a broad statement about 10 things I didn't learn at seminary because there are too many variables. But if I could say one thing that seminary does uniquely offer, it's what Tommy and Peter have already said. You do need that theory. You do need that backbone. Uh, you don't want to be overly practical because ministry is um, always changing. But the thing that doesn't change is the word of God. And so you want to make sure you're well-grounded there. All right, let's close this down with our segment where we talk about any reflections, recommendations, what has struck you about the last week of your social distancing and uh, any thoughts that you'd have in the week ahead. So as I was, as I was kind of thinking about the Easter week, I, 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 to our previous kind of point about patterns and rhythms in life, and, uh, and I found it, I actually found it pretty difficult to get into kind of the the Easter mood, which is usually just a real joyful season um, for for us, and it was this time too. But spiritually, I you know I, I had some trouble, and and I realized that in my own personal practice that I had I had I had been so involved in kind of academic reading and preparing for classes that a lot of my more just sort of spiritual development reading has has not been as uh, high on my priority list. So I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, reading the possibility of prayer by John Stark, new book that's that's out and and fitting for this uh, COVID nineteen season, and and have, have enjoyed that and picking up some of the the Puritan paperbacks on the shelf in the back and 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 reminding myself of the value of just um, dedicated spiritually nourishing our our souls, communion communion with our with our God. So I've been thinking a lot about that this week as as something that needs to be. A, a, you know, just a regular part of our practice. I think I'm at a point where I'm very slow, just in general as a person. So I think that this coronavirus has finally sunk in. This is going to be around for even much longer than June, I think, the effects of it. I mean, I've been thinking about even that first Sunday when my church reconvenes. For some reason, I think a lot of people are going to cry because there's a lot of like unaddressed emotions I think people are going through right now. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that, but right now what I've become militant about almost is having a daily routine mm. um, because I'm entering this stage where it's getting so boring, where there's no variation, you know, because you really have nowhere to go. But I'm at a point where I've been very disciplined about just uh, my daily schedule, especially exercise, because it's easy just, I don't know about you guys, I've had the munchies. I'm just eating, like, <laughs> I'm snacking nonstop. Like, I don't know what's going on here. So I, 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 my kids were observing that. They're like, you're always snacking. And they, they never see me snack. So I've been trying to be very disciplined about my schedule, my time. And um, yeah, it's been good. And at the same time, as I already alluded to, there is, I think, a deep sadness that has, I think, begun to sink in. So it's that balance of being very much aware of the emotions that I and many others are going through. And at the same time, being all the more disciplined because this is going to be a long season. And so we have to steward it well. So that's where I am. I guess for me, the this past um, week or so um, has been, I don't know, it's 
the the being shut in here and being isolated has been both a blessing and a curse. Um, I think it was talking with uh, uh, you know something that we have shared in the past has been the the fact that we can't feed and react with our class uh, in lecture is is difficult. Um, and how we are learning things, but are not are really given an opportunity to really express it fully. Uh, and I sensed that a little bit this past week. Uh, I started setting up these question and answer sessions through this mass Zoom Q&A session. And that was the first time I've had a chance to interact with the classes, my classes face-to-face. -face. And it was so refreshing as opposed to just recording my lectures and uploading them onto um, onto uh, onto canvas and, and 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 that's something i just realized you know I've, I've missed a lot but at the same time something else i've come to learn is uh through different circumstances i've, I've gotten myself in a situation where i was officiating three different weddings this summer and all of them of course now have been uh, uh taken off track because of the quarantine and things of this nature so there's been lots of discussions with three different couples on what to do and how we're going to do this and and things of this nature, and it's uh, and uh, I, I guess doing this, it 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 caused me to go back into real pastor mode, um, in a way that I haven't had a real opportunity to do so in a long, long time, and mm. uh, and that's something I've realized I, I've I've missed quite a lot uh, is to you know not just uh, teach truth exegesis theologically biblically historical redemptively but to really do it in a way that you see the results and the fruits of it right before you i mean these are hurting people they're confused or frustrated uh you have an opportunity to offer them well someone's got to offer them some hope some some encouragement here and um and they look to us as pastors to to be able to do that and and you know it, i'm still kind of working through it in some of these cases but it's been it's been um, it's been kind of neat to be able to engage in this to a certain extent, um, and this quarantine in a way has sort of provided that opportunity. I have more time now with my family than I've had. I can't remember the last time we've been able to sit together and enjoy a family dinner as much as we have over the last several weeks. You know, I have adult children, as you know. They're all scattered doing their own things. Uh, I can, uh, rarely do we get a chance to get sit down and just interact, and we get it every night. It, in that sense, it's just been, you know, uh, a tragedy in some sense, but a, a real, I guess, you know, with respect, a, a kind of a blessing in disguise for me to be able to have that real solid time to interact with the kids you know, or my children, uh, the wife, and and to really share openly. Uh, my youngest daughter um, yesterday comes to me on, you know, Resurrection Sunday, says that uh, she, in tears, she's scared of dying. I don't know where that came from, but it just gave me an opportunity to sit down with her and and give her the hope of what the resurrection really means and, and what it means for her and what her faith in Christ is going to provide for her. And so um, I guess it's what Paul says in, I mean, the apostle Paul says it's, I think it's in Ephesians five sixteen to, to redeem the time, to make the most of every opportunity. And, 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 and in many ways, the last couple of weeks have been a chance to do that in ways that, you know, I, I really wouldn't have anticipated it. So. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's it's funny. I don't I think it's Pollyannish for us to highlight the good things. Um, we should expect that in all situations, 
there are reasons to give thanks. I even think about you know, the off-quoted section from uh, the Corey Ten Boom's uh, The Hiding Place where they're in the, the, the Nazi prison camp and they have fleas in their tent, in their cabin. And the fleas are so bad, just everybody's flea bitten. And they think, could this be any worse? I mean, here we are in a concentration camp and our cabin, our, our sleeping quarters are filled with fleas. And then they realize that because of the fleas, the guards won't come into the cabin as often as they used to. And, and they can have quiet worship services and they start giving thanks for the fleas, you know? And I realize I, I don't want to, it's, it's not Pollyannish to acknowledge that there are good things that come out of this. It's not like we're whistling past all of this horror and yet also recognizing that there are good things and being at home with family is a beautiful thing. You know, we, we had um, Easter Sunday, we, we watched the, the service that was held online and they did something different this time at our church, Fourth Presbyterian Church. Um, they actually had people who typically would play instruments you know, for worship, for opening the opening hymn and, um, you know, for the song of response and those kinds of things. They actually had them record themselves playing. Um, and, uh, and in some cases we, we listened and in some cases we sang with recordings from previous Sundays and even previous Easter's. And there was something about that. I mean, I, I have to admit, I got pretty emotional both in watching, you know, for instance, we have one member, Joel, who plays for the National Symphonies down at the Kennedy Center regularly playing violin to open the service. And it was just him in his parlor playing violin. And it was beautiful, you know, that we found this way to come together. And then we moved on to all of our traditional Easter hymns and to listen to voices singing from years past. People realizing that the people singing, you know, the recorded worship services from years past knew nothing of coronavirus or COVID-19 and yet here we were singing along with them and then receiving you know the hearing the the word taught by uh by the pastor it was a very it was touching in the way that we came together creatively and yet it was also a remembrance of how much we're not together you know, mm-hmm. and, and I thought about, you know, are we going to just become comfortable with Sunday worship, you know, or Sunday services happening online? And no, I don't think, and I don't, I don't think I will. And yet at the same time, there is a sweetness to it. There's a tenderness to what we're going through now so that we can come together in some way and praise God, we can do it in this manner of the, uh, you know, of the, of the online gathering. Um, so again, another week passes um, who knows how many we have left, and we're learning more about the church, about Christ's lovely bride, and we're learning more about the work that he's doing not only in ourselves, but in the world around us. Thank you, brothers, for gathering together. Uh, we look forward to coming back together next week and uh, com- conversing again. We have a couple of new and exciting announcements that we'll be making in the weeks ahead, so pay attention to that, everybody. You can find this podcast on iTunes, you can find it on Pocket Cast, you can find it on all kinds of places where podcasts are um, provided. Uh, if you find it, please do subscribe and please do leave questions for us and, uh, and help us interact with you during this time that we're all apart. Thanks a lot, take care, and we'll see you next week.
and I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keen, Associate Professor of New Technology. What's that? <laughs> you know what? I think I'm just going to go and uh, do something useful <laughs> like uh, watch the gas grass grow or... What did I just say? <laughs> or maybe make paper airplanes. <laughs> you completely... <laughs> what did I do? What did you I know? say? I'm jumping around on my notes, which has killed kill me. What did you I say? You know, I, I can make my bed. I haven't done that yet this morning either. You just that introduced me twice and Peter zero times. That's all. You know what? All right, scratch this. Okay, it's okay. I can, I can take a hand. I can take a hand. We'll have, we'll have a separate <laughs> e no, Just, just ignore We're going to start off in introductions. I'm just going to go through them the way I've got them written down. Forgive me. Peter, don't read anything in here. <laughs> I'll, I'll try. Peter, totally read it. <laughs> okay. All right. 